Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. We are on the side of science. We want to have the full and complete and honest and forthright description of prenatal human beings to be the one that gets out there. We want to call out the gaslighting, anti-science, dishonest approach. For liberal democracy to work, it requires self-government. And for people to be self-governed, they have to have virtue. And virtue in a kind of a classical tradition and understood even at our founding, the source of virtue was found in religion. But when we open our eyes in death, we will see Jesus. And on that face is a smile, not a scowl. When we close our eyes in death, we will open them and our ears will be filled with the hymns of the angels. A lot of Christians talk about worship as us serving God, but the Lutheran emphasis is that God serves us through his word, through the sacrament. This is Will from Michigan, and I'm a Lutheran high school teacher and football coach. And I love beginning my day listening to Issues Etc. All right, guys, let's go. They are truly remarkable words. Paul writes in Colossians 2.9, In him that is in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's hard to wrap your head around. And there's so many ways of misunderstanding that, that it bears a lot of repetition and and a lot of going back to that subject to say, what does Paul mean when he says deity dwells in him bodily? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Monday afternoon, November the 14th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It'll be part five of our series on the catalog of testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions. Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever will be our guest John Lamparis joins us from the Institute on Religion and Democracy for an update on the ongoing divisions in the United Methodist Church. It's kind of falling apart congregation by congregation. And then Mark Hemingway will bring us his wisdom on post-row disinformation, the media's role, and even the role of the medical community. He's senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Todd. What a joy. We're going to begin with a question from Becky. She writes this, Thank you for Pastor Whedon's series on the catalog of testimonies. I would like to know what a catalog means here and where it comes from. Well, okay, catalog in this context only means a listing and testimonies refers to the testimony both of scripture and of the church fathers about the disputed point so if you put it together the catalog of testimonies is a listing of citations from scripture and the fathers showing that the lutherans did not come up with some wacky new terminology or wacky new theology about the two natures in Christ, nor about the way that the divine nature communicates its glory through the personal union to the human nature. Where do we find ourselves now picking up in our series? I think we're going to start a new point, if I'm not mistaken, it's point four. Point four. Mm -hmm. What do they say there? Okay, the statement in point four that kicks it off is this. The Holy Scriptures and the Father's remember what we just said, understand the majesty that Christ received in time included not only created gifts with their limited qualities, but also the glory and majesty of divinity that belongs to God, to which his human nature in the person of the Son of God has been exalted. And thus the human nature received the power and efficacy of the divine nature that are peculiar to the deity. 
Okay, so if your eyes have glazed over by this point and you're wondering, what do they mean by that? Well, the created gifts that are they're talking about. Do you remember when Jesus was in the temple when he was a boy, 12 years old? Do you remember how he astounded them by his learning, right? He, he was asking questions and giving answers, and they were just blown away by how much he knew. That's a created gift, right? He was not using his divine omniscience at that point. He was simply, he, he simply had extraordinary gifts as a human being, a very keen and beautiful intellect, which he used. So those are like created human gifts. But in contrast to those, we have scripture and the church father speaking about him receiving the power and efficacy of uh, efficacy means, you know, that which works of the divine nature that are peculiar to the deity. In other words, you, you've already pointed to the one passage, but let me give the first one listed here. John 17, verse five. And now, Father, Jesus is praying this on the night before his betrayal. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So what does that mean? How can Christ be asking the Father to glorify him unless this means glorify my human nature with the glory that I as the eternal son always have had with you from before the world existed and still has? So he's asking that the human nature have a full and complete share in that glory. And addressing that exact same point, Paul in Colossians 2 verse 9 confesses that in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity, all of God, dwells bodily. The simplest way to hear that, folks, is to hear the body of the man Jesus belongs to God the Son. It's his body. It's God's own body. So he is the eternal God-man, and his manhood belongs to his divinity. Where else do we find this in the testimony of the church fathers? Well, we start out with Hilary. He died about 367. He's sometimes been called the, the Athanasius of the West. He was sent into exile for fighting Arianism, too. And he ends up coming back and basically driving the, the teaching of Arianism, you know, that Christ is only a creature, not God himself. He derives it out of all of Gaul as he's made Bishop of Poitiers. So he writes, the word made flesh prayed that that which was from time, that is, has a beginning in time, might receive the glory of that brightness, which is without time. See, he's reflecting on that John 17 passage there. He's saying, ah, so when Jesus prays this prayer, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed, that's the word made flesh praying that what he received in time, his flesh, might come to share in the glory, the brightness that he had before time began, before the ages ever began. There's a statement also, for, like several statements actually, from Gregory of Nyssa, and it says, being exalted by the right hand of God, etc., this right hand of God, through the union, raised to its own height the man united to it. What is he saying there? Being exalted to the right hand of God. So we're talking here about the exaltation of, of Christ. We normally divide his life into the two states, right? The state of humiliation from his birth through to the suffering, death, and resurrection. The resurrection kicks off, or actually the descent into hell with the resurrection kicks off the state of exaltation, but it's preeminently confessed at the ascension. And that's what he means by being exalted to the right hand of God, being placed at the right hand of the Father through the union that it has with the eternal Son, with the eternal Word. The man himself begins to share the great height of being at the right hand of the Father. Do you remember how, I think we quoted it already from that hymn, at the name of Jesus, you know, humble for a season to receive a name from the lips of sinners unto whom he came, faithfully he bore it, spotless to the last, brought it back victorious when from death he passed. And it goes on to speak about how he bore it up triumphant to the highest height, to the throne of Godhead, you know, the central height. He fills it with the glory of that perfect rest. That's exactly what Gregory of Nyssa is confessing here. And he does a similar thing in his little book concerning the soul. He says, God the Word, 
that is the eternal son, is never changed by the communion that he has with the body and soul. Neither does he partake of their imperfection. Rather, he transmits to them the power of his divinity and remains the same that he was even before the union. This is just part of the basic teaching of scripture that God never changes, right? God is changeless. He's immutable. And so the eternal word is immutable. He will never change. But there was a moment when the eternal word received into his unchanging nature a body and soul. And that didn't in any way limit him or bind him. Instead, it enabled that body and soul to be filled with all of the goodies that are in the divine nature. Basil the Great asks this question, how is deity in the flesh? How does he answer that? Well, he turns, you know, Basil, of course, Bishop of Caesarea after Eusebius, and he dies about 379. He turns to this image of fire and iron. He writes, just as fire is in iron, not by turning into iron, but by imparting itself into the iron. For fire does not run out of the iron, but remaining in its place imparts its own specific power, which is not diminished when it is imparted. It fills the entire mass and becomes partaker of it. I mean, you can see the poker on the fire, right? I mean, you just see it turning red and glowing. And that poker then that literally, sh- I mean, the fire is dancing through the cold iron and has transmitted to it all of its own properties. This image, which Basil uses here, becomes the favorite image, which the fathers will use over and over and over again to confess what happens in the incarnation. One more short statement from Epiphanius before we take our break. Okay. He was bishop, of course, of Salamis, um, which is on Cyprus, and uh, he died about 403. He writes, strengthening an earthly body with divinity, he united it into one power, brought into it one divinity, being one Lord and one Christ, not two Christs, nor two gods, and so forth. So that's a very anti-Nestorian statement before Nestorius had actually really begun promulgating his teaching. He's being very clear that there is one Lord Jesus Christ. He's not two. We can't say, well, he's part God, part man, or he is God separate from man. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, we meet the eternal Son of God who became man, one Christ. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest, host of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. It's part five of our series on the catalog of testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions. And we will take up a lengthy statement from Cyril on the book of John next. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting lcms.org slash stewardship. Grace, faith, scripture, and Christ alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. Lord, help us ever to retain the catechism's doctrine plain. What makes a church unique? Perhaps we should ask what makes a church faithful. Calvary Lutheran Church of Elgin, Illinois, continually learns Christ's doctrine, simply explained in the small catechism. This doctrine teaches us Christ crucified, who even today comes and serves his baptized children in word and sacrament to forgive, strengthen, and teach us for daily life. 
This, Christ's own work among us, makes and keeps Calvary Lutheran Church faithful. Visit us at clce.org. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus shows that he remains invested in the creation and cultivation of more disciples by means of baptizing and teaching as he sends Ananias to Saul for that very discipling purpose. When asking, who are you, Lord, of Acts chapter 9, we see that Jesus is authority, power, present, discipling, and a keeper of promises. That's a little bit from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. It's 10 questions to ask every time you read the Bible. Find out more about it at our website, issuesetc.org. It's on every page of the website. Or call Concordia Publishing House and ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. It's part five of our series on the Catalog of Testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. So, Will, we come to a rather lengthy statement from Cyril. Yeah, there we go. Cyril is an amazing uh, writer, of course, and his commentaries on both John and Luke are, um, they're so deep, they're, they're so wonderful. So this is actually from his commentary on John. He writes, you are not entirely unwise when you deny that the flesh is able to make something alive. For if you are talking about the flesh alone, in other words, the flesh in isolation from the deity. No, it cannot make anything alive at all. It is in need of something to make it alive. But when you are finished examining very carefully the mystery of the incarnation, having learned to know the life that dwells in the flesh, you will believe that although the flesh is not able to do anything by itself, it has nevertheless become life-giving because it has been united to the life-giving word. It has been joined to the word, and so now it has become capable of giving life. The flesh of Jesus did not drag the word of God down to its corruptible nature. Rather, the flesh was elevated to the power of the better nature. Therefore, although the nature of the flesh, insofar as it is flesh, cannot make anything alive, nevertheless, it is able to do this because it has received the entire operation of the word. The flesh of Paul or Peter or others cannot do this, but that of life itself in which the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Ding, ding, ding. Back to that first quote. It can do this. Therefore, the flesh of all others can do nothing, but the flesh of Christ can make alive because in it dwells the only begotten Son of God. So this is at the end of the chapter 6, right, where, where Jesus frankly says about the flesh, the flesh profits nothing, the flesh can't do anything. And, 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 and yet, in the same chapter, he's promised that if you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have eternal life. And so this same sort of question then arises, well, wait a minute, is the flesh profitable or is it not profitable? And the answer that Cyril gives is when it's the flesh of the Son of God, It is very profitable. It can do much more than the flesh of any mere human being can do. Augustine, just a a very short statement there. I cannot agree that it is true to say that the deity experienced the violence done to his body in the same way that we know the flesh was glorified by the majesty of the deity. He's making kind of two points there. What is he saying? Yeah, he's denying that in any way it's not an equal equation. What happens to the flesh of Christ does not, cannot harm the deity. The deity is beyond that, right? But the deity owns that human flesh. It's its own flesh. And so he does indeed experience 
and we can say God died. That is perfectly correct, just like we can say God was born. But at the same time, we do not want to say, and notice Augustine used the abstract term deity, not specific, the person of God. So then in regard to the flesh being glorified, he's like, the flesh can receive everything. The deity can't lose anything, but the flesh can receive everything from the deity. That's his point. So he's not denying that the that Christ uh, that Christ according to both natures endured the suffering in the ways particular to that nature. Right. No, 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 no. He he most certainly is not. But he's not it is not as though he still is the author of life even though he is even when killed. he's lying dead. He is still the author of life. Yes. And he's still upholding the universe by the power of his word even when he's lying in the tomb. What do we get from Theodoret? All right, Theodoret, um, by the way, is uh, the bishop of Cyrus in Syria. He died about 466. He says, the word that became man did not confer a partial grace on the received human nature. Rather, it pleased God that the whole fullness of deity dwell in it. Said another way, the human nature of Christ doesn't become, you know, like superhuman by what's given to it. It's not like some sort of powers are imparted absent the actual fullness of God himself. It's actually God that is imparted to the human nature in the personal union. That's what happens. So not not God giving some things, but God actually gives himself, imparts himself in the flesh that is received from the Virgin Mary. He also says, similarly on Psalm 21, if the received nature has been joined with the divinity that it received, it participates and associates with the same glory and honor of the divinity. This is hearkening back to the point we heard earlier about it's right to give this human nature adoration and praise because this is the human nature that belongs to the eternal Son of God. Similarly, on Hebrews 1, the human nature itself after the resurrection attained divine glory. After the resurrection, meaning that it's not that he didn't have the glory before. We saw that in the transfiguration. He did, but he didn't always show it in the same way that he does after the resurrection. From that point on, there is no bridling of the glory that shines through his person. And finally, on this point, Damascene is saying the divine nature imparts to the flesh its own excellences while it remains impassable and does not participate in the passions of the flesh. Another way of saying the divine nature never changes, even as it receives into itself in union, in the personal union, the flesh of of Jesus Christ. And so also, you know, at least worth noting, Damascene, he's the, this is John of Damascus. This is the this guy that wrote the hymns, Come Ye Faithful, Raise the Strain, or The Day of Resurrection, great hymnist, and also a great defender of the incarnation via the icons. God can be depicted because God took on flesh and flesh can be depicted. A beautiful argument for the icons. We come to point five, which says Christ as God has divine majesty essentially in one way. It is his possession, part of his very essence, in and of himself. As man, he has it another way. As a result of the personal union, not in and of his very essence as a man. Yeah, so the word essentially there is the key or essence, and it means via his being, right? Christ as God has divine majesty via his being. He has it because of who he is. It's his possession. And because it's his possession, and God doesn't have parts and pieces, right? So when we say, for example, we would say, It's not that God is loving. It's that God is love. God is joy. God is peace. God is all these things. This is who he is. All the things that we call attributes of God, those are just different names for the divine essence as we experience it and as we sort of see from the pages of Scripture. So his divine nature has all of these excellences without ever having to receive them. But the human nature, the human nature, on the other hand, actually receives all of these things. And so as man, Christ receives the love, the peace, the joy. Why do they say the famous verse, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Well, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That's going with that first point. 
the divine majesty is essential. It has all these things essentially. This is who God is. So, you know, it's trying to back up that first point. On the other side of it, you have, he has granted the son to have life in himself because he is the son of man. So this is something which the son is given, not something which the son then has eternally to have this life in himself. And that is in his human nature. His human nature has the ability to impart life as we see throughout the gospels. There's a citation of Cyril and it says, there is one condition and quality pertaining to the creature and another to the creator. Our nature received by the son of God has exceeded its measure and by grace has been transferred into the condition of the one receiving it. What does it mean has exceeded its measure? Well, do you remember how John begins his gospel with, and from him we have all received grace upon grace, you know, one grace on top of another. And this is because all of this grace is poured into the human nature of Jesus Christ. So Cyril is starting to list this out. Let's just note that from here out for quite a while, We simply have quotes from Cyril, and most of these have to do with his dispute with his arch nemesis, Nestorius, who wanted to divide out the two natures in such a way that he could ascribe things to the one nature and not to the other. Cyril is the champion of helping you see the communion that happens between the two natures because of the personal union. And so all the goodies of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, these are being transferred into the human nature which the Son of God receives from his virgin mother. We're talking with Pastor Will Whedon. He's assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, and host of the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. It's part five of our series on the catalog of testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions. We will hear again from Cyril next. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. This new resource will help you navigate God's Word with clarity and confidence. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number 1-800-325-3040 or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Theology for Blue Collar, White Collar, and Clerical Collar. You're listening to Issues Etc. As we prepare for the Advent season this year, it's time for some contemplation. Your Christmas are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Don't celebrate another Christmas hearkening back to the age of glitter balls. See Ad Crusom's beautifully designed Christmonds together with our book describing how they fit into the church here. Visit adcrusom.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time.
Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part five of our series on the catalog of testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. So, Will, we now launch into they found a uh, vein of rich gold in Cyril, and they are going to mine it for all it's worth. Yeah, for sure. So another one from his book on John, he, he writes, Christ added the reason why he said that life and the power of judgment had been given to him by the Father. He said that is because he is the Son of Man, so that we would understand that all things were given to him as man. However, the only begotten Son is not a partaker of life, but is life by nature. I'll just note on that that a lot of modern commentators, myself included, tend to reckon when you come to Jesus talking about the Son of Man that it's actually a divine title, which he's using, referring back to Daniel chapter 7. But Cyril and actually most of the church fathers do understand it to be a confession that the Messiah is actually true man and as a confession of his humanity rather than of his divinity. When I say that he's true God, I think that Daniel's teaching he's true God. He's teaching that he's true God in the flesh because he's still the son of man who comes to the ancient of days and receives gifts from him. What's next in that rich vein? Well, he keeps running with the body of Christ makes alive because it is the body of life itself retaining the power of the word now incarnate. It is full of the power of him by whom all things exist and continue to live. So he's talking again when he says the body of Christ, he means specifically, he's talking about the Eucharist and whether or not the Eucharist can actually impart life to people. He's like, well, of course it can impart life. It's the very body of the, the, the eternal word of God, him who is life itself. Do you remember how he said that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life. And that life was the light of men. So that life is now inside of a human body. And he imparts that body to us to give us a share in that life. He moves on, same kind of points being made. He says, because the Savior's flesh was joined to the word of God, who is by nature life, it was made life-giving. A good teacher says what he needs to say. He says it again, and then he repeats himself. So that's what he's doing here. Chapter 18, he says, I filled my body. He's speaking in the person of Christ. I filled my body with life. I received mortal flesh, but since I am by nature life, I dwell in the flesh. I completely transformed it according to my life. It's a beautiful statement you can hear from the lips of Jesus. Like, My body is itself life and life-giving. In chapter 24 of his book on John, he goes on, the flesh by its very nature cannot on its own make anything alive, but in Christ, it is not alone. It's united to the son of God who is in very essence life. Therefore, when Christ says that his flesh gives life, he's not ascribing the power to make alive in the same way as he himself or his own spirit is able to make alive. For the spirit makes alive by himself the flesh rises to this power by the personal union. We cannot understand with our minds or express with our tongue how this happens. We receive in silence and firm faith. In other words, it reminds me of the statement that, that Melanchthon did, and I think it was in his first edition of the Logic Communis, where he wrote, quid sid nasci, quid processes, me nascare sum professes. You know, what it, what it is to be begotten, what it is to proceed, I don't know. I'm just confessing. And so that's what Cyril is urging us to do here. Or as Melanchthon also said in, in a later edition of his Elochi Communis, that the mysteries of God are to be adored, not investigated. That's exactly what Cyril is saying here. We don't have to figure out how the flesh can actually do this. It's enough for us to know that this flesh is the flesh of the word of God. And therefore, it has power to do everything that Christ promises. He moves on, same book, chapter 10. He says, the flesh of life, having been made the flesh of the only gotten, has been brought to the power of life. In other words, it can give life itself. All that he's dancing around here is this strong sense that the early fathers had 
that there is a vital connection between partaking of the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist and the resurrection of the dead. It's because the undying flesh and blood of the Son of God go into you that your flesh cannot remain in death. It's going to be raised in incorruption just like that which it has received. Same book, moving a chapter further, or in a book 11, chapter 21, I'm sorry. Christ's flesh is not holy in and of itself. It's transformed by union with the word into the power of the word. It is the cause of salvation and sanctification to those who partake of it. Therefore, we say that the divinity works effectively through the flesh, not because of the flesh, but because of the word. And by word there, of course, he means the person of the eternal son. Book six in dialogue, he goes on, Christ is glorified by the father, not because he is God, but because he was man. It is not a result of his own nature that he was divinely effective. He received it by the union and ineffable concurrence that God the word is understood to have with humanity. Basic thought that we've heard all the way through here. Another, he said, two more actually from Cyril, he says, he introduced his life into the received body by virtue of the union. And in the same place, the word is life-giving because of the inexpressible birth from the living father. Yet, we should recognize where the effectiveness of divine glory is ascribed also to his own flesh. Also, we confess that the earthly flesh in and of itself is incapable of giving life so far as its own nature is concerned. So he's really carefully guarding against the idea that the flesh was in some way deified. He's like, no, the flesh remains flesh. This isn't a hybrid. The humanity of Jesus is not a God-man hybrid. He remains fully human according to that nature. Right. The humanity is hugely exalted, but it never essentially owns any of the divine attributes. Those it always has received in and through the personal union, and especially at the exaltation. They move on to Epiphanius. Epiphanius writes on this. His human nature was not something living apart by itself. Let me stop on that for a second. That's really important. You must never conceive that the human nature had an existence of its own before the incarnation, as though the human nature was there and then divinity came to the human nature. That's not the right order at all. That's an ancient heresy of adoptionism, isn't it? Well, it would be the heresy of adoptionism, or maybe even, I think, it could skate into some of the, the thinking of Nestorius. But Epiphanius is really clear. You mustn't think of the human nature ever as something apart and by itself. He goes on, neither did he ever speak with the divinity, separate it from the human nature, existing apart from it as though they were two different persons. This is a direct slam at what in the Reformation came to be called the extra Calvinisticum, you know, the part of the deity that didn't quite fit into Christ. But always the human nature united with the divine nature, there being one consecration, and even now, the human nature knows the most perfect things because it is united to God and joined to the one deity. So he won't let you pull the two natures apart, but he won't let you equalize them in any way. Everything the humanity has that is a divine prerogative, it has only through its union with the eternal Logos. And a truly remarkable quotation from St. Augustine. Yeah. He says, I certainly do adore the Lord's flesh. Yes, the perfect humanity in Christ, because it has been received by the divinity and united to deity. I confess that there are not two different persons, but that one and the same son of God is God and man. In a word, if you separate man from God, I never believe or serve him. 
this reminds me so much of uh, so many of Luther's statements, right? Where he would say, hey, d- d- don't try to offer me to, to, to go have my mind, go search out for Christ in heaven. The only God I want is the God in the arms of the Virgin and on the arms of the cross. That's the God that I serve, the God that has hair. Just like Augustine's running right with that. He also says, and if anyone is disdainful about worshiping humanity, not a bare humanity by itself, but united to divinity, that is the one son of God who is true God and true man, he will die eternally. He will perish everlastingly. He makes that very clear. One more from Augustine. Yeah, he says, the flesh of Christ does not by itself cleanse believers, but through the word, again, he means the eternal word, by which it has been received. So the flesh of Christ, again, is operative to actually take away the sins of the whole world, but it does this through its union with the eternal word, the the Son of God. Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is leading us in a teaching in the Catalog of Testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions. You're connected to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks to St. John Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas, Trinity Lutheran in Fort Wayne, Indiana, St. Paul Lutheran Church in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and St. John Lutheran Church in Kewaskum, Wisconsin, for their sponsorship of Issues Etc. When your confessional Lutheran Church pledges $1,000 to support this worldwide outreach, we'll promote your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. You'll find a one-page informational flyer that you can print and present to your church's voters meeting on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor in 2023. On the other side of the break, we turn away from, well, not away from uh, Augustine, but to the Council of Ephesus as we continue to talk about the two natures in Christ from the Catalog of Testimonies. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. IssuesETC.org slash 2023 nominations. What is eternal life? How do you understand it? How do you imagine it? We're full of all sorts of ideas of what eternal life might be like. And yet the scriptures are clear. Eternal life centers on Christ and him crucified for the sins of the world. The November issue of the Lutheran Witness explains some of these misconceptions about eternal life and what the scriptures say. So to learn more, pick up your copy of the November issue of the Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, teaching you to interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, is looking for an English teacher with a master's degree for the 2023-24 school year. Edwardsville is 30 minutes from downtown St. Louis. The position would involve teaching upper-level, dual-credit English classes. For more information, send an email to Principal Jay Krause, J-A-Y-K-R-A-U-S-E, at M-E-L-H-S.org, Jay Krause at M-E-L-H-S.org. Keeping the message straight. Getting the message out. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Bethlehem Lutheran, Sylvan Grove, Kansas. Faith Lutheran Church and Preschool, Marionette, Wisconsin. Good Shepherd Lutheran, Marshall, Minnesota. Emmanuel Lutheran, Manchester, New Hampshire. Messiah Lutheran, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Pilgrim Lutheran, Kilgore, Texas. St. Athanasius Lutheran, Fairfax, Virginia. St. Paul Lutheran, Bridger, Montana. Trinity Lutheran, Rock Springs, Wyoming and Zion Lutheran, Fredericktown, Missouri. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Lutheran Talk 
the cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us. Lutheran Music Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're going through the catalog of testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. We come to the Council of Ephesus. It's simply one of the canons, and it says, If anyone does not confess that the Lord's flesh is life-giving for the reason that it was appropriated to the word that gives life to all things, let him be anathema. What are they condemning there? They're condemning Nestorius. I mean, this is Cyril's great vindication. This is when the council basically just takes Cyril's um, entire confession of the the relationship of the two natures and, well, to borrow a a Roman Catholic term, stamps an imprimatur on it, uh, that, that everything that he has said there, they are affirming. And so just as Cyril always taught this, the Lord's flesh really is able to give life not as flesh, but because this flesh is united to the eternal word of God, it has the ability then to give eternal life. And anybody who denies that, you know, anathema, let him go to hell. Such a person is not able to actually, they're not confessing the same Jesus that is revealed to us in the pages of the New Testament. Where are they going to next? Next we hear, you know, we're skipping a whole bunch of years. We skip down to Theophylact. He was Bishop of Okrita in Bulgaria. He died in 1108. So he's like the, the last of the fathers quoted in the catalog of testimonies. He's been quoted before we hear him here say, he has given all things into his son's hand according to humanity. But if also according to divinity, what do we mean by this? The father has given all things to the son by reason of nature, not of grace. So what he's trying to preserve there is the son does indeed eternally receive from the father, but it is an eternal reception. Everything the son has comes from his being begotten of the father, and he eternally possesses all of those attributes that they're his by nature. But the human nature, on the other hand, receives these same things by the grace of the personal union. Theophilic takes us into the famous words of the so-called Great Commission. Yeah. If you understand the statement, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth, as something God said about the word, then understand that this means that everyone, both the willing and the unwilling, acknowledge me as God. But when this is said of the human nature, then understand it this way. I, previously the condemned nature, am now truly God according to the unconfused union with the Son of God, and I have received power over all things. So when he says all power is given to me, it's like, if you want to hear that as spoken of the of the human or the divine nature, you've got to hear it as eternally true, not something that happened at that moment. But if you're hearing it as regard to the human nature, then you're hearing it as the human nature in time at this point of the exaltation receives these gifts from the Father. We should point out that's also a distinction for our sakes that when Christ says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he speaks as one Christ according to both natures and means both things at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely, I mean, I think that's Theophilic's point is that he didn't want to have to decide the question. He wanted to, to see um, there's truth either way, as you just said. And we go back to John of Damascus, you know, the last of the systematizers of the Eastern theologians. And he writes, he did divine things, not according to the capabilities of the flesh, but because the word united to his flesh displayed its own capabilities. Look at this. For glowing iron does not burn because of some natural power it has, but only because it is united with fire. Therefore, in itself, the flesh is mortal, but because of its personal union to the word, it is able to give life. So he obviously you're hearing here the same image that uh, Basil had used centuries earlier. And I'm glad that they, that they say, 
I mean, you would expect them to contrast in itself mortal. Now it is immortal, which is certainly true, but it's not simply immortal. It is now the source of life because of the union with Christ. Yeah. I mean, Christ as life himself, his flesh then is able to impart that which he himself is. The same author again, he says, Christ's divine will was both eternal and omnipotent, but his human will not only began in time, but also endured natural human qualities. It was not omnipotent, but because it truly has by nature become the will also of God the Word, it has also become omnipotent. So people have for many years struggled with this whole matter of the two wills. This is the thing that got St. Maximus's tongue cut out because he wouldn't keep quiet about it, right? He's like, no, you have to confess that, the, that there are two wills in Christ because each nature has its own will. People that oppose that would, you know, they would point to Gethsemane and say, well, then why didn't he say, not my will be done, but my will be done? Um, it's like, well, he was praying as a man. And as a man, he prayed, thy will be done. But the Father's will is not different than the will of the eternal Son or of the Holy Spirit. It's the same will. So in this instance, you have just a clear confession of, of the two wills, but that his human will finally, through its union with the word, does indeed become omnipotent. This is a confession of what happens in the exaltation, that Christ exalted to the right hand of the Father, has a will that cannot be opposed. It is a will that is almighty. And he stays on the issue of the of the will in another quotation. The divine will has by its own nature the power to do all things that it wants to do. But Christ's will does not have power to do everything by nature, but only because it is united to God the Word. It's the same point that they were making about the flesh. They're now making it about the will. Christ's will is omnipotent, but only omnipotent insofar as we're seeing it in union with the divine nature. He turns from will to knowledge. Yeah, to uh, you know uh, his omniscience. The human nature does not possess essential knowledge of the future. Remember when Jesus said about that day and that hour? Right? You know, not, not the angels in heaven, not even the Son knows, only the Father. But the soul of the Lord, because of its union with the Word and the personal identity with it, was rich in the knowledge of the future, in addition to other divine attributes. And at the end of the chapter, he says, We say that the one Christ, Master and Lord of all creation, at the same time God and man, knows all things. For in him, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So another way, another way of saying that the weakness of his not knowing all things was laid aside in his exaltation. We've got about one minute before the break. Let's get this one last quote in to round off this point. Also from the same author, so we're still with John of Damascus. Although the soul of the Lord by nature did not know the future, because it was personally united to the word, it had knowledge of all things not by grace, but because of the personal union. And shortly afterwards, since the natures in our Lord Jesus Christ are distinct, the natural wills, that is the powers of will, are also distinct. So again, he's trying to make sure that we don't mix up and confuse and make a composite Christ. He's acknowledging each of the natures does what's specific to it in harmony with and in union with the other nature. We're walking through the catalog of testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions with Pastor Will Whedon. He's assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, and formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Pray, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. When we come back, have a little more conversation with Pastor Whedon. Then we'll get an update on the divisions in the United Methodist Church with John Lamparis. Lutheran. It's not a label, it's a confession. You're listening to Issues Etc. 
What can we learn from our Lutheran forefathers on how to face the challenges of a culture openly hostile to Christianity? Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled For Such a Time as This. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. You'll also find Pastor Will Whedon's article on the monthly Psalter, the free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Repentance and forgiveness, sin and grace, law and gospel. More than cliches, real preaching for real people in need of hearing the real Christ. Christ for you in the divine service at St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, Illinois, where we gather every Saturday night at 6 and on the Lord's Day, Sunday mornings at 745 and 10. Look for the Church of the Neon Cross on I-55 between exits 30 and 33. Find us on the web, stpaullutheranchurchhamill.org. St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, where there is the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation for the people of God. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're going through the catalog of testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Here is the sixth point. The divine nature powerfully demonstrates and actually exerts its majesty, power, and efficacy, which is unique to the divine nature and always remains so, in, with, and through the human nature that is personally united to it. The human nature has such majesty because the entire fullness of the Godhead dwells personally in the received human flesh and blood of Christ. And then there are three citations about the blood of Christ. What are they? Yeah, first of all, um, from Romans 3, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. You know, propitiation, a wiping out of sins by his blood. The blood, the human blood wiping out the sins of the entire world. He makes the same point in Romans 5, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, declared not guilty by his blood. And then uh, Colossians 1.20 is cited. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So all of these are about the blood of Christ and the incredibly wonderful things which it accomplished. I think I was kind of surprised when I read through the catalog here that Chemnitz and Andrea did not include what I think of as a capital passage on this, which is from Acts 20, verse 28. Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders, said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or bishops to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. In other words, by the blood of God, the church is actually purchased and bought. So it's the blood, it's because the blood is the blood of God that it can do the wonder-working things that we see in Scripture. They cite Athanasius, and here's the quote, Why should the Lord's body not be worshipped when the Word, by stretching out his bodily hand, healed the person who was sick with fever, and by speaking with a human voice, raised Lazarus, and by extending his hands on the cross, overthrew the prince of the air. Yeah, I mean, he's pointing out throughout the entire passage, everything Christ did that won this incredible victory was done and won through his human body. His human body was literally the, the repository there of all the divine nature and all the graces that eternally flow from the divine nature. He goes on there, God the Word who is united to a man does not perform miracles apart from the human nature. It has pleased him to work divine miracles through it and in it and with it. And then a little bit later, according to his good pleasure, he made the humanity perfect above its own nature and did not prevent it from being a rational living being, a creature, a true human nature. Yeah, what I love about it, does that remind you of a saying that we used to hear all the time from our dear Dr. Nagel, where people would want to try to limit the humanity of Christ? He would always say, look, we don't actually know what it is to be fully human. He alone knows. He alone is, because we're all fractions. We're pieces. 
He's the whole. And so, yes, his humanity is able to be perfected way beyond anything that we could ever imagine. I mean, stop and think of it. Todd, he used his human feet to walk across water. He used his human body to pass through doors. He, he had a real human body, but he could do things with it that just absolutely stagger and blow the mind. Kind of puts to flight all the Calvinist hand-wringing about whether Jesus can be present on altars in the sacrament. It, it, most certainly. I mean, that's the point. You can't tell him what he can do with his human nature. He can do with his human nature whatever he wants to do with it. He is truly God in the flesh. Then there's two short quotations from Cyril. Yeah, but the first one we're going to have to deal with in detail. Look at this. He says, The soul, having obtained union with the word, descended into hell. But using its divine power and efficacy, it said to the ones in bondage, Go forth. So what Cyril has in mind here is this idea that was very prevalent in the ancient church, that when the Old Testament saints died, they went to what we might call the bosom of Abraham. They were in a place of comfort. They were waiting for the consolation to finally arrive. But this is, you know, sort of in the background here is Jesus saying, no one has ascended into heaven, but the son of man who came down from heaven. He says this, nobody has ascended. Don't ask me about Elijah. I don't know what to do with that or Moses or whatever. But, but you do get this picture here that when Jesus goes to hell, I mean, what Cyril is picturing here is when he descends to hell, that means generically the place of the dead. So in the, in the mind of the ancient church, he went there both to proclaim his victory over the demons and the damned, but also to bring out the prisoners, to say to the prisoners, go forth, those who were in Abraham's bosom waiting for the arrival of Messiah, whom he then brings into the kingdom. By the way, it is kind of interesting that uh, Dr. Luther, in his very famous sermon on the descent into hell, he says, our Lord Christ did descend into hell, battered hell open, overcame the devil, and delivered those who were held captive by the devil. And he says later, Christ has crushed hell, opened heaven, bound and taken captive the devil, and delivered the prisoners. So, I mean, it sounds like that's the same idea Cyril is running with there. I just want to sort of put that in the background because otherwise you're going to be reading that and going, what, what does that mean? With only about 30 seconds, what is the comfort of this point that we've been driving home that it, the divine nature exercises its divine powers and gives its divine gifts precisely through the human nature? It means that your brother, the one who shares your flesh and blood, and who now is the Lord of the entire universe with all power and all authority and everything subject to him, he really is true God, and he really is your brother. He's got your back. That's the joy of this entire section. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. He formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Pray, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. He hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and he's currently leading a study on the Gospel of Luke. You can listen at your convenience at thewordendures.org or on your favorite podcast provider, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. Will, thank you very much. Take care, Todd. When we come back, we're going to get an update on the divisions in the United Methodist Church. John Lamparis will be our guest, and then we'll spend some time with Mark Hemingway of Real Clear Investigations discussing post-row disinformation. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, as we move farther into St. Luke, we cover the Benedictus Part 2, Nativity of Jesus, Shepherds and Angels, Visit of the Shepherds, Circumcision and Presentation. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Have you thought about eternal life? When does it begin? What is eternal life? Well, your eternal life does not begin when your body, earthly body, fails and is laid into the grave. It begins, in fact, in the waters of holy baptism where you were tied to the death of Christ and in him you were raised. 
To learn more about this topic of eternal life, pick up your copy of the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not only does our church need men right now, but the world needs men who will proclaim the gospel in its purity. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Peter Scare, Associate Professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. If when you go to sleep at night you're thinking about it, my experience with it is this, is that thought won't go away. So if you're going to bed at night thinking about following our Lord and becoming a preacher of this gospel, then I would love if you could come and visit Fort Wayne, our campus. We'd love to show you around and show you what it is that we do. Have you ever considered becoming a pastor? Contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Christ-centered, cross-focused, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. Lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Luther Academy.